0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, I I trust there'll be an opportunity for me to say some things personally later on, but we are here this morning uh, to hear from the Lord in Psalm 53, and I want to begin by asking you, who comes to mind when you think of a fool? When I hear the word fool, I immediately think of one of my heroes when I was six years old, Mr. T. (laughs) If you don't know who he is, Mr. T was the tough, tender-hearted, mechanical wizard of my favorite television show, The A-Team. And his name on the show was uh, Bosco B.A. Baracus. I'll let you figure out what B.A. stands for, but he was one cool dude. He was not afraid of anything, he was clever, he was totally jacked, and when the A-team had to outsmart some unreasonable bad guy, Mr. T would come up with some ingenious solution and say, I pity the fool. (laughs) And believe me, you did not want to be that fool. And can I say that two weeks ago, On Twitter, Mr. T tweeted the following. I pity the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Mr. T gets it. He's still my hero. (laughs) (laughs) I begin a little lightheartedly because this is a difficult song. It's humbling. It's searching It's sobering. And as much as we might want to think that Psalm 53 is speaking of someone else, as we will see, its message is universal. David is speaking to all people, and perhaps especially to those who claim that God exists, though live as though he doesn't. And so, like Mr. T, we ought to pity the fool, especially when that fool is us. And Psalm 53 is here to tell us something difficult now so that we don't have to hear it on the day of judgment. Okay, so here's how this psalm unfolds. David moves from telling us about the heart of the fool to the identity of the fool, to the destiny of the fool. To the hope for the fool. So if you're an outlining kind of person, here are the words for you to think about. Heart, identity, destiny, and hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. And so we ask you this morning by your spirit to help us. Help us see Jesus, we pray. Because we ask in his name. Amen. Okay, so the heart of the fool. Psalm 53 teaches us some very fundamental things about the human condition, about our nature and desires. Let's look together at verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no god. They are corrupt, doing abominable things. There is none, there is none who does good. At first glance, we might think that the fool of verse 1 is the atheist. But the Bible doesn't believe in atheists. The Bible doesn't believe in atheists. In fact, the scriptures very clearly and repeatedly attest that no human being at any time, in any place, can plausibly deny the existence of God. This is the case that Paul makes in Romans chapter 1, verses 19-20, through 20, where he says, "...for what can be known about God is plain to all mankind." Because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So mankind is without excuse. And Paul builds his argument on Psalm 19, verses 1-3, through where the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Human beings simply cannot deny creation's witness to the existence of God. From galaxies To grasshoppers, God's glory, his power, his moral beauty, his creativity, his wisdom, his goodness. All of those things are displayed in the things that he has made. Our very nature as derivative created beings who can't bring ourselves into existence, who can't sustain ourselves moment by moment testify to God's sovereign power. His miraculous deeds displayed throughout redemptive history and preserved for us throughout the ages in his word bear witness to his purposes and to his mercy and to his goodness. That's why there can be no philosophical or theoretical atheists. God is there. And he is not silent. The Bible simply doesn't believe in atheists. So here's what Psalm 53 is saying. The heart of the fool says there is no God, not because God is plausibly deniable, but because the human heart stubbornly refuses to bow the knee to God's rule. The heart refuses to give God the glory that he is due. And the highest injustice the most immoral act is saying in our heart, I cannot deny that you exist, but I refuse to worship you. I refuse your authority. So, despite the witness of reality, the heart of the fool suppresses the truth about God. It says, he does not see, he does not judge, he does not hold to account, there is no God. Listen to how Psalm 10 identifies the full suppression of this truth with wickedness. The psalmist writes, for the wicked boasts in the desires of his soul, and the greedy for gain curses. And renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The wicked says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The wicked renounces God and says, you will not call to account. So Psalm 53, 1 is teaching us that by its very nature, the heart of the fool suppresses the truth about God. It is stubborn, proud, sin-sick, and opposed to the lordship of God. So now that we've seen a little bit about the heart of the fool, let's look at the identity of the fool. Spotting an atheist is as difficult as drawing a square circle. Right? But spotting a fool is as easy as getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror. (laughs) Look at the rest of verses 1 through 3. They are corrupt, doing abominable deeds. There is none who does good. God looks down on the children of men to see if there are any who understand. If there are any who seek after God, they have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. The beginning of verse 1, we have been looking at the heart from David's perspective, but now we are looking at mankind from God's perspective. Seeing all of humanity simultaneously, God finds none who act wisely. None who from the heart naturally pursue God in worship and obedience. Rather, the entire human race is characterized by rebellion against God. Instead of walking with the one by whom and for whom we are made, everyone has, verse 3, fallen away. Humanity refuses God the worship and obedience he deserves. Together they have soured on God, becoming bitter, resentful, acrimonious, disaffected. Rather than acting wisely and choosing good, all their actions have turned inward. They have become self-seeking, rather than God-seeking. They have become morally corrupt. And the concluding words of verse 3 capture this scene comprehensively. None of them does what is right. Not a single one. So who then is the fool? Not someone else. Not them. Us. Apart from a miracle of God's grace, to be human is to be a fool. Now you might say, hold on a second, Pastor Ryan. You're going too far. How can we be lumped in with those woke liberal progressives? Those raging anti-theists, those enemies who persecute the Church of Christ. But Psalm 53 actually gives us this answer. Where it's placed actually gives us this answer. Track with me for a second. You may remember that Psalm 53 is almost a word-for-word repetition of Psalm 14. And the fact that the Psalter repeats Psalm 14 between Psalm 52 and Psalm 54, that, that could seem accidental, but it's intentional. And it reminds the people of God why we are not exempted from the League of Fools. As we've seen over the last two Sundays in Psalm, 50, in Psalm 51 and Psalm 52, several of the Psalms in this second book of the Psalter reflect on particular moments in David's life. And those who arranged the Psalms repeated Psalm 14 as Psalm 53 to point back at the actions of Doeg the Edomite and King Saul which occasioned David's lament in Psalm 52. You can go back and listen to Jordan's excellent message last week uh, to hear more. But what's important for the moment is to remember that in Psalm 52, David is lamenting Saul's wicked slaughter of the inhabitants of Nob. Obviously, King Saul wasn't a woke liberal progressive, right? Or a raging anti-theist. He was Israel's king. And as king, he was especially responsible to cultivate his personal relationship with the God of Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, God says, And when the king sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law, And these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up among his brothers, that he might not turn aside to the left hand or to the right hand from God's commandment, so that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So while nature and conscience would have been sufficient as a witness, Saul had God's very word. He knew precisely what pleased God and what didn't. Saul did not deny God's existence. He defied God's kingship. He said in his heart, there is no God. And in his anger and his bitterness, he murdered 85 Levitical priests and their wives and children. He became the fool. He committed an injustice so abominable, so repulsive, so despicable that it can only be described in Psalm 53, as abominable. So Psalm 53 stands here, here in this place, in the Psalter, as in part, at least, as a witness against the high-handed sin of God's people. God's people who foolishly say, he doesn't know, he doesn't care, he doesn't judge. He won't hold to account. So what then is the identity of the fool? All rebellious, sinful humanity generally, and especially those who know the living God, who know the beauty of living according to his word, who, and who in pain or anger or lust or greed deliberately choose to defy his lordship. Okay. Now this next part is going to be a little bit more doctrinal. So... You've got your coffee. Just take another little sip, okay? And buckle in and track with me for a minute. What we've just seen in Psalm 53, 1 through 3, and in these other texts of Scripture is sometimes labeled by theologians as the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity describes the complete moral inability of mankind to seek after God. And as beings created in God's image and for relationship with Him, we have the natural ability to see that God exists and that He alone is worthy of our worship and obedience. There is no physical limitation that prevents us from worshiping or obeying Him. But because our hearts are trapped in conscious, desperate rebellion, we are morally unable to seek Him. That's the judgment of Psalm 53, no one does good. No matter how irrational it may be to disbelieve in the God who is there, we cannot reason ourselves to belief. We need a miracle of grace. Here's why, I want you to do a little experiment. I want you to fold your arms right now, everybody sitting here, in the angry mama pose, all right? Here's the angry mama pose. All right, now, note while you got your arms folded, which arm is on the top of the other? All right, you got it? You're looking at it? All right, here's what I want you to do. Try to flip it. Kind of feels a little awkward, doesn't it? Why do some people have their right hand above their left forearm and others the opposite? Intriguingly, it doesn't have anything to do with handedness. Scientists believe that our arm folding preference is an inherited trait. Why is the whole human race in bondage from birth, in rebellion against God? It's an inherited trait. Rebellion from birth is the consequence of our first parents' rebellion in the garden. This is the doctrine of original sin. Genesis narrates how Adam and Eve chose not to act wisely by walking in holiness and obedience and gratitude. Instead, they presumed that God was keeping something from them that they deserved. And so rather than acknowledging his benevolent authority or giving thanks to him, they defied him by eating of the one tree that was forbidden them. The result was catastrophic. Genesis 3 verses 16 through 19 describe how Adam and Eve's rebellion resulted in disordered desires that produced all kinds of dysfunction in the relationship with themselves, with one another, with God, and with the world that he had created. And their offspring inherited this new state of reality. All humanity is under the power of sin. That's what David reflects in the Psalm that Jonathan preached on a few weeks ago, Psalm 51. Flip back there and look at verse five, where David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans five, verse 12. All sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. And in Romans three, Paul even quotes our Psalm, Psalm 53 verse three, to underscore the fact that all of the human race is under the power of sin. Listen to to Romans three verses nine through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So The heart of the fool suppresses the truth about God. And who is that fool? The man who refuses to make God his God. And under the power of sin inherited from our first parents, that is all of humankind. Apart from a miracle of grace, transforming our disordered desires, every single one of us is trapped in obstinate foolishness. Friends, this is a humbling doctrine. It's a doctrine against which our proud hearts want to rebel. But hopefully we can see it is a doctrine that gives all the glory to God because all of the initiative is of God's grace. Okay, stretch break, doctrinal stuff. We're gonna be past that for a moment. So now that we've seen the heart of the the heart of the fool, the identity of the fool, let's consider the destiny of the fool. What is the destiny of the fool if his folly remains unaddressed? Where does folly ultimately lead? Consider for a moment that what makes foolishness folly is not merely that it is sin. What is foolish about foolishness is that it places an unwise bet. The fool wagers that God isn't really who he says he is, even though this is contrary to the witness of creation and conscience. The fool says he doesn't really see, he doesn't really care. But this is a wager that the fool cannot possibly win. The fool might wager that poison doesn't affect him, But that won't stop it from killing him if he drinks it. And David knows this. Look at at verse 4. David says, have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? David sees the fool's wager. He cries out, do they not know? Do they not realize that gobbling up God's people like eating breakfast cereal will result in their own destruction? Do they not know that they're playing with fire? Do they not know that they are teetering on the edge of destruction? But then David sees the answer. Look at verse five. There they are, in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Like in a vision, David sees that God's judgment has suddenly come upon his enemies. They were confident in their rebellion. They were consciously disobeying God's rule. They were acting as though God did not see. They were living as though he did not exist. But he does. And he sees. They weren't frightened. But now they're seized with terror. The ESV translates Psalm 53, 5 in the present tense. And that helps to kind of capture what is here a, uh, what Hebrew folks call a prophetic perfect. God says something will happen. The prophet sees it. And because God has said it, because God has said that it will happen, it's as good as done. So David is looking at what will happen that is so sure It is as though it is happening right now. It is as good as done. Those who walk in pride now will be brought to complete destruction. And so there's a warning for us here. David is saying, if I reject him now, he will reject me then. And if he rejects me on that day, there will be no hope. Shame, verse 5, destruction, verse 5, that is the fool's destiny. So, Psalm 53 is sobering. It highlights our impossible situation. We are fools who, by nature, we cannot change our foolish state. And our destiny is shame and destruction. We need a miracle of grace. But thank God... The psalm does not end there. Look at verse 6. The fool's hope. Verse 6 is a prayer. David prays, oh that deliverance would come out of Zion. Oh God, would you send a rescuer from Jerusalem? Would you send a deliverer from the holy city of God's king where your presence dwells? Oh God, would you send your promised anointed one to rescue men and women who are trapped under the bondage of sin? And then, David says, when God's deliverer brings back his people from the bondage of sin, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. As a boy, I went hiking one morning with some friends. This was many moons ago, before there were GPS and cell phones and all that kind of fun stuff. Maybe there were cell phones, I don't remember. But there were no GPS, no smartphones. And somewhere along the way, we split up into two groups, intending to kind of rendezvous later in the day. And I hung toward the back of my group, and after some time, I realized that our leader was hopelessly lost. We got off the trail, intending, we thought, to bushwhack our, a shortcut to our destination. But as the hours wore on, we got more and more lost. Night began to fall. It was dark and cold. We were hungry and tired. I still remember that feeling, the the tightness in my chest, the rising panic that we might be lost in a howling wilderness of 10,000 acres with no rescue. In that moment, what I wouldn't have given to be at home What I wouldn't have given to be at the campsite in the tent, having a warm meal, or at least have a compass. But getting deeply lost certainly heightened the joy of being found. I won't forget that moment when the headlamp of a friend from the other group blinked into view just over the horizon. What it was to be found. Perhaps we cannot know the joy of salvation until we know the true danger of our situation. We are, by nature, fools. Our hearts are resolutely set against God. We have no desire to change. And that folly is abominable to the Lord, verse 1. It impacts our relationships with others, verse 4. And that folly ultimately leads to final rejection by God, in verse 5. There's only one hope, that salvation would come out of Zion. Verse 3 tells us that there are none who seek God, right? None who do good, not even one. But that judgment is no longer absolutely true. Because the Gospels tell us that there is a time in human history where God looked down from heaven and saw into the heart of a man and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The word salvation in verse 6 is the word Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua's name is Yahweh saves. Joshua's name in Greek is Jesus. There is hope for the fool. There is salvation to be found in one man, the Lord Jesus. Jesus who alone lived in perfect, joyful obedience to his Father. Jesus who alone acted wisely, whose entire earthly life was in perfect concert with the Father's purposes. Jesus, the anointed one of God, the son of David, the son of man who laid down his life to redeem fools from their sin. Isaiah says that we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, Jesus, Paul says, broke the power of our miserable inheritance. He says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life the one man Jesus Christ the Apostle Peter says there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved salvation has come out of Zion so as we conclude there is hope for the fool perhaps this morning For the first time, the real sense of your plight has settled in. Perhaps the word of the Lord, which is the Spirit's sword and a difficult word, is prompting you. Psalm 53 is telling you that you are a fool now, so that you you do not hear it on the day of judgment. Perhaps in his kindness at this moment, he is inclining your heart to find your hope in him. Responding to that sense is as simple as saying, I am that fool. I need rescue. I repent of my hard-hearted rebellion and I trust in the rescue of Jesus, the Messiah. Friend, I promise you that you are not too far away for rescue. Jesus says to you in John 6:37, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. This morning, receive the mercy of God. Or perhaps you're trusting in Jesus, but you see, as we all do in our hearts, the tendency to say, He doesn't see. He doesn't hold to account. As Christians, we live in this time between the times. We are in Christ a new creation. And yet our foolish nature has not yet entirely been eradicated. Before grace, we were not able to not sin. But now in Christ, we are able to not sin. But we look forward to our Savior's final return. When we will be with him. And no longer able to sin. And so, until that day. Can we... Resolve together, God helping us to live our utmost for his highest. Can we remember? Can we remember him who laid down his life to free us from our selfish, sinful ways? Can we remember him daily and walk in the newness of life? That's why we come to the table. We come to the table to remember the word is. We come to the table to remember that he laid down his life for us and we celebrate his death at the table until he comes. So this table is open to all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus. The pastors will come We'll distribute the elements. We'll begin with the bread. Friends, as Jesus, as John tells us uh, about Jesus, um, what does he tell (laughs) us? His body is true bread. Let us serve you.